Tonight's reading will be from 1 Samuel 1 to 14 and 1 Samuel 15, 7 to 23. You can find that on page 280 of the Church Bibles and 286. Nahash the Emonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and asked, What is wrong with these people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow the Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they turned out out as one man. When Saul mustered them at the Seek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into a camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. You want to turn to page 286? Then Saul attacked the Amalekites, all the way from Havilah and Shur to the east of Egypt, who took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and said to the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that had despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I have grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all, the, all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. And he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. 
There he was set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowering of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought him from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out, wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Thank you much, Terry, for reading for us. And uh, please do keep that passage open, and on your handouts you'll see an outline of where we're hoping to go. Uh, I'm sure all of us are familiar with rise and fall stories, uh, rise and fall stories. Uh, Rise and fall stories, we get them in history. Uh, Think of Napoleon Bonaparte rising through the ranks to become emperor of France, only then to spend his final years in St. Helena off the coast of, thousand miles off the coast of Africa on his own, uh, on, um, without any influence. Or rise and fall stories in sport. Remember Leicester City, uh, 2015, I think it was, rising through the uh, league tables uh, to take, not only get in the premiership, but to take the premiership, but then to fall back down again. Sorry if you're a Leicester City fan. Uh, maybe you're um, familiar uh, of rise and fall stories in business, um, stories like Ratner's Jewelry. Remember those? Uh, ask your parents afterwards, some of our young people. Ratner's Jewelers. Does anyone know about this at all? Yeah. Biggest jewelry train uh, in the UK. The chairman said some off-guard comments about the products, and the share price plummeted, and the company is no more. See, we're all drawn to those sort of stories, aren't we? The, the rise and the fall. And I guess one of the reasons we're drawn to those sort of stories is because they act as a bit of a warning for us. As we hear what happens to Napoleon or Leicester City or Ratner's Jewelers, we think to ourselves, I better not let that happen to me. There's a warning about Napoleon, not to get proud and isolate myself from friends or how to manage success like Leicester. Um, or rather, uh, they 
weren't very good at managing success. Or products. Don't criticize your own products like Ratner's. See, they tell us something that we're to learn from. And this evening, uh, as we look at this narrative, we're going to see the rise and the fall of King Saul. And as we do, I think there is in it for us something to learn, something to warn us about. See, first of all, we see um, in chapters 8 to 12 the rise of King Saul. And in one sense, this rise of King Saul isn't actually about Saul himself. Rather, it's about the God who causes him to rise. Uh, Saul's rise shows us God's mercy and kindness. You remember in chapter 8 last week, Woody took us there. In chapter 8, the people demand a king. And um, that might not seem a big deal. I guess as we hear that, we might think, well, some people prefer republics. Some people like monarchies. What's the big deal? Uh, But you'll remember last week we saw that their demanding of a king meant rejecting God as their king. This isn't just a kind of innocent request for a style of government. This is them turning their back on their God. And we see more on the scandal of what they're asking um, a bit later on in chapter 12. There's going to be a bit of page flicking tonight, I'm not going to lie. Um, So do have your Bibles open. Uh, And just look at chapter 12 with me. Chapter 12, verse 8. Because here uh, Samuel gives a bit of a history lesson. And in chapter 12, verse 8, he goes back to Egypt. And he says, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. Uh, Over the page, notice the pattern here, verse 10, King Moab came against them, verse 10, they cried out to the Lord, and God, verse 11, delivered them. Um, See, you notice the pattern, God cries, uh, sorry, the people cry out to God, and God delivers them, but notice the pattern in verse um, 12, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. See, each time people cry out, God delivers them. People cry out, God delivers them. Now people cry out, we want a king to deliver us. See, despite God's impeccable track record, showing his mercy, showing his ability to save his people, They turn their backs. They want a king. But what is it that God does in response? Does he reject them? Does he stop being their God? Well, no, he provides King Saul. Now, I don't know if anyone managed to read ahead. Um, I think we've got a sticker for you afterwards if you've managed to do that. But if you read ahead and read all seven chapters, chances are nine and ten were kind of melting your brain a bit. Because in nine and ten... There's all sorts of random details about donkeys and loaves of bread and wine and prophets with tambourines and flutes. It's a great read. Um, And it just seems a little bit random. Why are we getting all these kind of isolated details? But actually, they're put there to show us that God works events to bring about his king, Saul, And in chapter 9, we see why. Turn with me to chapter 9, verse 16. 
Because here God speaks to Samuel and he says, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Notice the language. They cried out, God save them. But even after their rejection, now they cry out and God provides them their king. See, God could have done two things, couldn't he? He could have either dismissed their claim of a king and said, no, you're not having one. Or he could have said, look, fine, you have a king, but you're going it alone. But God doesn't. Even though his people reject him, he doesn't reject them. And in chapter 11, we see why this is just such good news that God doesn't abandon them. Um, Chapter 11, we had it read out to us. Um, We meet Nahash, the Ammonite king, who comes against this um, city, Jabesh Gilead. I've got a map here, uh, just in case you don't know exactly where it was. I had to look it up. Um, but it, you'll see it's right out on a limb. It's right there where the red arrow is. Ammon is towards the right of the screen. And this is a city that's not only kind of geographically out on a limb, but in the book of Judges, uh, they were a town that didn't side with the rest of Israel. And they were kind of cut off from Israel. So here we've got um, this sort of lonely city uh, besieged by Ammon. And, you know, you can imagine, can't you, the council meeting of Jabesh Gilead, the council leaders getting around and thinking, what are we going to do? And so they go out and meet uh, Nahash, the Ammonite king, and they try to form a treaty. And he says, okay, you can have a treaty But the treaty depends on you cutting out your right eye. I mean, it's not reasonable, is it? And so the leaders think to themselves, well, give us seven days and we'll come back to you. Look at how they put it, though, in verse 11, verse 3. Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender you. The word there is literally uh, save us. See, if no one comes to save us, we will give ourselves over to you. And King Saul, he hears of this event. At 11 verse 6, we told that the spirit rushes upon him. And he puts out a conscription call to the country. Not the kind of, your country needs you poster. But he decides to cut up an oxen and send it through the land. And basically says, look, this will happen if you don't come out and fight. And it works. 300,000 gather, and they um, say in verse 9, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. Well, that word is, again, saved. See, the defeats, they defeat the Ammonites. No more months of starvation. No more threats from the enemy. No more gouged out right eyes. They are saved. And just look at their response in verse 13. Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued or saved Israel. It's a real high point here. It's a real high point, and it's a surprising high point, given where we started in chapter 8. 
See, the people turned their back on God, rejected him as king, and yet God works through their rebellion to bring about a king who then saves them. See, God, in other words, works through their poor choices. He works through their rebellion to bring about his salvation. God was perfectly in his rights to say, if you want a king, have one, go it alone. Or you're not having a king, I'm not doing it. But rather, he gives them what they want and still works his salvation. It's like a rebellious child who robs the family home to go it alone, only for the father to to stay watching at a distance to check they're okay. A father who puts money in their bank to check they've got enough. See, God works through his people's rebellion to bring salvation. And it's what we ultimately see happen in God, in the Lord Jesus. See, in sending Jesus, God doesn't wait for his people to obey him. Uh, He doesn't wait for his people to turn to him. Rather, we read in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the rise of Saul points to the God who works his purposes to bring a savior. But with the rise, of course, comes the fall. And secondly, we see the fall of Saul, because for all the promise we see in chapter 12, things go downhill in chapters 13 to 15. Uh, If you just look at the end of chapter 12, you'll see where we leave things. Uh, Here, Samuel is speaking to the nation, and notice what he says in verse 24. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. You can almost hear, can't you, the narrator going, what's going to happen next? So you've got a king, but be careful to obey, because otherwise he'll be swept away. But two events, sadly, in King Saul's life, mean that he sadly fulfills that. The first comes in chapter 13. Uh, The Philistines this time, not the Ammonites, they're they're gathering uh, at the the border. And it's an utterly terrifying picture. Have a look at verse 5 in chapter 13. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots and... um, uh, Have I got that right? 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It's kind of Ben-Hur sort of stuff, isn't it? They are utterly terrified. And so it's not a surprise. We read in verse 6 that the Israelite army starts to peel off. They go and hide in the caves, some desert. And Saul would like to engage, but Samuel has told him to wait seven days for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifice. 
And Saul seems to do all right. He waits seven days, but he gets to the seventh day and gets a bit impatient. He sees the army kind of splintering off. He sees what's going to happen. And so we read uh, in verse 8 that Samuel, uh, that Saul takes the uh, offering uh, in verse 9 and offers it himself. And Samuel arrives, and in verse 13 he says, You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would establish your kingdom over Israel for all time. Do you hear? Chapter 12, make sure you obey God's command. Chapter 13, Saul breaks God's command. And the second incident comes up in chapter 15, where we had it read to us. Uh, chapter 15, um, God tells Sam, uh, Saul to go against the Amalekites and destroy them. And it's worth saying that this is one of these um, very difficult passages we come across, because why is God telling uh, Saul to destroy them? Uh, I was saying to Woody that I'm glad we haven't got a question time tonight, but maybe you want to save it up for next week uh, and see how we do. Uh, but um, uh, this is one of those tricky passages, because why is God given a command like this? Um, there's lots we could say, um, but um, a couple of things to point out. Um, they're not a kind of innocent people. Uh, if you look back over the page to 14 verse 48, he talks about the Amalekites as having plundered Israel. So this is not a group of people just kind of minding their own business and God gives them a command to kill them. No, these are people that are attacking Israel. But even more than that, notice in 15 verse 2 that God gives a kind of uh, longer term history of what's going on here. Uh, he says that they have fought against you ever since you come up out of Egypt. And so what God seems to be doing here is to say to Saul, bring about my judgment. Uh, not only judgment for what they're doing now, but what they've done ever since you've come out of Egypt. Now, I get that's a difficult thing for us to come to terms with. Uh, but it's worth saying that it's a one-off event. It's not to be repeated, certainly not by the church. Uh, Jesus tells Peter to put down the sword. But it is a moment where God uses his people as the agent of his judgment. But the thing is, this chapter doesn't really kind of give an apology for what God asks. Uh, rather, the focus is on the fact that Saul just doesn't do it. Uh, we read in 15 verse 9 that Saul spared Agag, the king. He spared all the good bits of what was left. And he even raises a monument to himself in verse 12. And in 15 verse 12, Samuel goes to Saul uh, to confront him. And you get a bit of a hint of a guilty conscience, don't you, in verse 13, when he says, the Lord bless you. I mean, you've got to be thinking something's going on here. And then Samuel says, almost with, well, it is comedy, isn't it? What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears, this lowly lowing of cattle? that I hear. And Samuel says in verse 19, those terrifying words, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes 
of the Lord. See, here again, Saul just doesn't keep God's word. He's been told, it'll go well for you if you obey God's commands. But here, he reinterprets them. He does them differently. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe there's a bit of you that thinks, does it really matter what Saul did? I mean, he, he waited seven days, so what if he offered the sacrifice on the seventh day? And with the Amalekites, he pretty much wiped them all out, apart from a few choice things. And notice he even goes on to say that actually he was going to use them for a sacrifice towards God. But actually, if we have that sort of reaction, it underlines to me how lightly I treat keeping God's word. It's worth saying that God here is not being pedantic. He's not thinking, well, um, you've got to kind of tick this box. The, The whole point of waiting to sacrifice was to show that you trusted God to deliver you. And instead, Saul treats God a bit like a kind of genie. I'll do this little sacrifice and God will deliver the goods. But the whole point was that he should trust him. And the Amalekites, it was Saul was thinking, well, I can offer this sacrifice here. But that's not what God wanted. He wanted a heart that trusted him. And the big theological lesson comes in 1522, where Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In other words, God doesn't want a people or a king who do the ritual but don't obey his words. He doesn't want a people or a king who just kind of tick the I do God box but don't actually trust the words of the God they're serving and there's a warning here isn't there for us as we see Saul's fall because it shows us that obedience to God's word really matters and notice the subtlety of it Saul never at any point says well forget God's word I won't do it There's a kind of subtle twisting of it, a subtle downplaying of it. Uh, Saul, you might say, questions, did God really say? Because Saul still offers the sacrifice after all. He carries out some of what God asks. And Saul, as he says, puts aside these cattle to offer some for a sacrifice to God. See, so often our, I know, I know at least my rebellion against God, comes under the guise of some religious motivation. We say things like, well, I've prayed about it. Or God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. But Saul's fall shows us that God cares about obedience to his word. And if we've got a heart that doesn't trust God, well, all is lost. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. 
See, Saul rises, Saul falls. But in seeing Saul's rise and fall, it's not only a warning for us, but it also points us forward to the king you and me truly need. In um, 13 verse 14, just over the page, this is the last bit of page flicking. You've done very well. I love the Russell. Well done. Uh, 13, 14. Um, here we see Samuel say to Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. See, these chapters show us this is what we need. We need a king who is dedicated to God, who's got a heart for obeying God. And that's the king we see in the Lord Jesus. As Jesus comes, he says things like this in John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. Jesus doesn't do things as he sees fit. He doesn't change his plans according to what he thinks is logical. He obeys. He carries out God's commands. And that obedience, it goes right up to the extent of being under imaginable pressure. As Jesus is in the garden praying and he's got sweat like drops of blood. What does he pray? Yet not my will, but yours be done. And because of what Jesus has already achieved, his obedience becomes our obedience. Because of his death and resurrection, God doesn't look on us as our sins deserve, but looks on you and me as he looks on his son. Yes, there are warnings here. God's word matters. To disobey it will bring about a fall. But the reality is that you and me are already in that camp. None of us can say we've obeyed God's word. None of us could say we obey him at all times. But we do have a king who has stepped in on our behalf to live in full obedience to his father and die for us. So that where you and me cannot delight in God's word, we have one who has. As we close, some few implications maybe to kick around afterwards. Three things um, to take away from this. First of all, God is more gracious and merciful than you imagine uh, or probably imagine. See, I don't know about you, but as I see God provide a savior... I'm reminded that even through my stuff-ups, God can work his mercy. And it might be that some of us just need to hear that time and time again. Maybe we're thinking, I love to come to God, but I'm going to hold off until I've sorted things out, until I've put this sin aside. But actually, God comes to you even before you come to him. He's more merciful. Secondly, as we've been seeing Obedience to God's word matters. The warning here, there is a warning here not to think we know better than God, to trust him at his word. 
Uh, maybe there's some of us here tonight that, that are holding on to that, trying to trust his word, despite all the temptation not to. Well, this is an encouragement. It matters. Keep trusting. But I guess there'll be others of us who need to be reminded once again not to be more clever than God, not to think that we can pick and choose different parts of his word. And third and finally, rejoice in the king we have. King Saul wasn't it. We're not it. But we have one who is. And I don't know about you, but it can be easy to just sort of focus on what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, which, of course, is absolutely right. But we've also got to remember that Jesus doesn't just wipe the slate clean. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And so as I look at him and his obedience, I'm looking on how God sees me. Now he has died and risen. What a king we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the king we have in Jesus Thank you that you have chosen him as one after your own heart. And we pray, Father, for all of us, wherever we're coming from, that you would lift our hearts to him, cause us, Father, to see what he has achieved so that we will be those who follow him and his words. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.